Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Good time of day to all of you, my friends, on the Cover Stories with Chess Life podcast. There are some people who, simply by the effect of their personality or their voice, become larger-than-life figures in their field. Today's guest, Grandmaster, and everyone's favorite uncle, Alex Yermolinsky, is one of those people. A St. Petersburg native, Alex emigrated to the United States in 1989 after nearly a decade working as a coach in the Soviet Union. Soon, his ratings skyrocketed earning him the Grandmaster title and reaching the 2600s back when that meant something. Uh, Alex was rewarded with invitations to elite events like Hastings, Tilburg, and uh, what is now known as Tata Steel, or what was then called Vikanze. He's a veteran of many U.S. Olympiad teams, the winner of the 1993 shared with Alex Shabalov, and 1996 U.S. Championships, alongside buckets of Opens over the years. But Alex was never simply a player. His entrepreneurial spirit was apparent from his earliest days in America. The Yermo Chess Academy, dating from around the turn of the century based in Cleveland, was an early effort paired with a must-read internet site that still holds up when found on archive.org. Some of the fruits of that website, and certainly a lot of its spirit, can be found in the 1999 The Road to Chess Improvement, a title that was published to rapturous reviews and that remains one of my favorite books. Alex became the Grandmaster in Residence in the Mechanics Institute in 1999 and held that position through 2007. He was elected to the U.S. Chess Hall of Fame in 2012. Currently, he resides in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a relative hop, skip, and jump from my own home here in Omaha, where, as his chess chess based bio says, between his chess work online, he plays snooker and spends time outdoors, happy as a clam. Anyone who has known Alex uh, or met him uh, knows pretty immediately that he's a man of uh, he's a man of opinion, and that he's not afraid to share those opinions with anyone who asks. That's why I asked him to write our February cover story on the Skilling Open, where Wesley so ruined Magnus Carlsen's birthday by defeating him in the finals. Alex is a great analyst, as the article reminds us, but he's also an excellent writer. And I'm glad to bring him back to the pages of a magazine that he once, due to the influence of a previous editor and following Bobby Fischer, called Chess Lies. I'm speaking to Alex at his home in South Dakota, which I'm told is not nearly as snow-packed as mine is, uh, a state of affairs that somehow I find incredibly unfair. Good time of day to you, Alex. How are you doing? Hi, John. Well, happy to be here. I, uh, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, I know our listeners are going to uh are going to get a big kick out of this and uh I, I think really when the the february issue reaches their mailboxes in just a few days i think they're really going to enjoy the eight pages 
that we put together on the Skilling Open. So let's talk a little bit about that first. Let's talk about the Skilling Open and the the Meltwater Champions Chess Tour from Chess24 and Play Magnus in general. Um, what are your general impressions of the event and the tour um, and how Wesley so did? Mm, I don't know. In the beginning, I was rather skeptical about the whole idea of playing chess online. I mean, to me, like, probably too many people, whatever was happening uh, back in the, in the spring and early summer seemed just a temporary thing. But, However, uh, I understand now that uh, the certain changes in the world uh, that impacted chess and that's, that's, those changes are probably there to stay. So I need to take... Uh, I need to take a broader look at this whole thing. And this is how I came to kind of embrace, maybe a little too late, but starting from the skilling open, I uh, I learned to embrace this new form of chess, and I'm glad I had an opportunity to write an article for Chess Life. So why do you think Wesley uh, is 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 finding success in, in these types of events? I mean, he, he had an excellent tournament, again, uh, you know, beating Magnus on his birthday in the finals. Uh, is there something about his style that lends itself to the format? Or, or is it, uh, what, what, what do you think it is? I think Wesley, of all top players, has the most natural style. I mean, uh, he, he just, I, I'm not saying that moves come to him out of nowhere. Obviously, there's, uh, there's work behind all this, and then there's effort. However, he's very organic in, uh, in how he plays. And therefore, he's probably going to be the least affected by, uh, by the conditions. And in that, I include even different forms of chess, such as the Fisher end. We know, of course, that he did very well in that, and he also beat Magnus Carlsen in that. So you think then there's something about his style that lends itself to 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 uh, nine sixty or Fisher Random in in particular? Yeah. Um, ex- explain that a little bit for some of our listeners because I think that's a very interesting point and it's not something I thought of before. No, the thing is that uh, like you have this unusual piece configuration, right? Okay, let's call it nine sixty. I'm kind of used to Fisher Random, but let's say nine sixty. You have this unusual piece placement, and obviously. Well, it's still the same pieces, you know, kings, queens, rooks, bishops, knights, and, and all that. But they positioned in a, in a different way. And most people, when they when they have to deal with this, they try to bring the pieces back where they where they belong, belong in in, in their view, and they base that view on their experience with standard chess and standard opening setups. Well, that's why quite a bit of games played in, in 960 are boring, because both players are just trying to desperately get to something they can lay their finger on. And therefore, there is no confrontation, there is no clash, and the positions kind of level out. Wesley is a different story. Oh, he's just... Uh, he just takes it naturally, like almost like he never played chess before. Oh, I, I mean, the regular chess. Right, right. Oh, so he looks at the, uh, at the at the position where the pieces are and immediately comes up with the plan without falling back on something that is familiar with. So he's not clinging to that to that old stuff. 
it just plays it naturally from from the get go, from the position that is. Do you think that that Fisher Random or Nine Sixty is is part of the future of of top level competitive chess, or 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 do you think it's it's still uh, more of a sideshow, so to speak? I'm I'm rather for the latter. I don't think it's going to take off. I don't think so. I think it's too difficult, and uh, well, people having a hard time relating to that. Even if top players, well, not bad players at all, well, they still kind of look at this. Oh, that's weird. How do I get it back to normal? Then for the average viewer, unless we we just wait till the new generation of of chess fans comes around. Maybe then, but for those who used to regular standard chess, I think it's too much of a of a leap. I don't think it's going to take off. America is blessed with with quite a few top players right now, and and, and in particular our our top three, um, you know, Fabiano Caruana, uh, Wesley So, and Hikaru Nakamura. Um, they've all sort of traded leadership spots in the rating list over the years. Where does Wesley stand among his American peers right now? Uh, and and I guess more broadly. What do you think the current status of top-level American chess is, and and where is our next generation coming from? Well, I would say this. Currently, as we stand, uh, Carolina's number one in classical chess. Uh, no, they're playing in YKZ now. He's in a leading position. Well, and with some others, uh, but no, he's competing again and uh, very strongly at that. So... Since today he didn't lose to Magnus Carlsen, well, he's <laughs> not that many rounds left, and probably Carolina is the favorite to win that YKZ tournament of second year running. Uh, and this is no accident. Well, it was rather strange that he didn't do so well before the pandemic in the, in the first half of the candidates tournament. But he still has a chance. There are seven games to go when there is you. So it's not it's not over yet. He's only one point behind. So Karan is number one when it comes to classical chess. Well, but if you talk we talk rapid chess and blitz chess, a combination of both, particularly when it's played online, then Wesley is the, the better player. That that leads to I think an, an interesting question about your your sense of the current state of chess, um, and it's something you mentioned that you were reevaluating. In, in light of everything that's happened in the past year. But this trend towards rapid chess, uh, and in particular to online play, um, what do you think the long-term effects of this will be? And and do you, do you think we're going to see any effects on how people play over the board um, at, at Tata Steel, for example? It's kind of a guessing game now. But, okay, let's look at this. All the invitations, invitational lists for online tournaments are based on the rather obsolete ratings of classical chess as of uh, beginning of 2020. So a lot of rating, uh, the rating you know, has a lot of tournaments that were played even before in 2019. The last year of chess was played, no, the way it was. So it's not entirely clear to me if, the, if these people present are actually the best players when it comes to play rapid and blitz and particularly online. Maybe there are not. Well, there's a combination of factors over there. To, in order to play well online, first of all, you have to have a, how to put it? Well, 
I mean, absence of all distractions. You're playing from home, meaning that, no, put it this way, you can't have anybody there in the house at that time. Yeah, I think anyone who has worked from home or uh, tries to do anything creative from home knows exactly what this problem is. Well, that's, that's how it is, you know. So you can't have a wife, you can't have kids, you just can't have anything. You have to be one person, you know, who sits there and uh, whatever, you know. So that's the only way you can focus on this. So that alone, you know, makes a lot of difference. Mm. Look at Grishuk, for example. How many times, you know, you follow the Grishuk playing in some online events and you can hear his kids on the background? I mean, how can this be helpful for his concentration? Obviously not. That explains all the time trouble. No, that, yeah. <laughs> no, well, that doesn't explain the time no, trouble. No, not all of them, but, but I mean, he likes to think and all yeah. that. But, but I mean, it's just objectively speaking, it's impossible. Yes. Secondly, no. Well, before that, we talked about traveling and then jet lag. Well, I can attest to that. How many times the U.S. team would travel halfway across the world, arrive at the site of a chess Olympiad, and when we sit at our players' meeting and say, well, who, who is physically able to get, to get up and, and go to the tournament hall tomorrow for round one? And some people would say, oh, maybe I need another 24 hours. Okay, that was difficult, but people dealt with that. But now it's much worse. There is no jet lag, but you're playing from a different time zone. Mm. And the time is just absolutely... Look at Ding Liren, for example. How well, Remember the tournaments he played early in last summer? Well, right now he... Well, I think he quit, and he did the right thing. That was too much. He played in the middle of the night in China, at that time, and he tried his best, but it was simply, it's too big a handicap. Well, so that's going to, well, Hikaru Nakamura had a, um, I think he was in the, in the West Coast somewhere. Right, he's in, he's in California now. Well, okay, he's in California now. Okay, excellent. And he had to play this tournament, maybe it was the skilling open, um, probably it was. And he said, game started at 6 a.m. No, well, 6 a.m. is kind of unusual, but no, well, biologically speaking, well, you can easily make that adjustment and start at 6 a.m. rather than play at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. That is next to impossible. So so there, there, there are practical difficulties. Do you think that there are ramifications for how people would train? Are, are, should, should they approach the games differently? No, well, if you continue with that issue, you know, so you have to train yourself to become or whatever, like an airline pilot, you know, or, uh, or a train engineer, meaning that, no, you function more or less up to up to standards any time, day or night. That's why it's good time of day to you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I mean, it's going to take a lot of time, and you probably better do this uh, while you're still, still young. Well, I think this is a very serious handicap. And, uh, well, people don't talk about this, but I think it's a big issue in, uh, in online chess. Because somebody is going to be in a better situation than the other guy. Yeah, and not, I'm not even, we haven't even addressed the problem of, of uh, having a steady internet connection wherever you may be. And, that, and, and how to grapple with uh, disconnections and forfeits and things like that, which I... I... Oh, yeah, those things happened, unfortunately. Well, uh, I don't know, it is... 
But that's something chess players are really not supposed to be thinking about. Because if, if you play chess with regular pieces like uh, all of us did, no, what are the what are the chances that you cannot physically execute this move? A heart attack? No. Internet disconnections it's something that hangs over your head like a, the proverbial sword. And uh, it could ever could happen at any moment and and those mouse sleeps too. When I played the senior championship online, I was just freaking out, you know. Like I don't know, a couple of times I thought I I let go of the mouse too soon and well, it, it's it was a giant distraction to be honest. It sounds like there's a uh, there's an opening for a uh, IT uh, an IT consultant for chess players to make sure all these problems are worked out. Maybe if you somehow you somehow go through some training, you know, to to get more confidence in your in your fingers, you know, and ability, you know, to to control the control the mouse, well. Probably would make sense to go through this type of training. You've had such such an amazing career uh, that I, I kind of want to go through it and, and introduce some things to our listeners that they may not be aware of. Um, in your early days in St. Petersburg, then called Leningrad, um, you, you've talked about your training, so to speak. I put that in, in scare quotes with uh, Vladimir Zak and the and the Soviet chess school. Um, can you tell our readers about those early days and how? somewhat against the run of play, you managed to become a very strong player despite the headwinds that you faced. People who worked in the, with juniors in Leningrad, obviously Leningrad was the second largest city and uh, with great chess tradition. But these guys, like, they kind of lived in the past. And, uh, well, they were all... I mean, they weren't older than I am now, but, but I mean, they seemed very old to me. Back then, of course, and uh, they never really, they never even tried, you know, to make us into chess players. The whole thing, and then it was even spelled out, you know, very clearly. All right, you do chess for your general uh, whatever development and uh, your character, whatever your mental facilities, and then you you go to university or get a regular job, and somehow what. What you did, you know, the 10 years of chess will somehow help you uh, in your future life, and that's pretty much the extent of it. Well, people who could not accept it, they were, no, they were first of all left to their own devices. I'm talking about Leningrad. Like, I wasn't alone with that, you know. There were all others who came little... One guy who came before me, Alexander Kochev, he managed to become the youngest grandmaster in the world and held this distinction for about six months until somebody younger, he was two years older than me, somebody younger became a grandmaster, but he was a pretty good player. But uh, again, you know, he he didn't have he didn't have the coach in the real sense of the word. He didn't. Neither did I. Neither did the people who came after me, such as Salov or Kalifman. We helped each other. You know, we formed friendships and we worked. But, but there weren't guys like... Okay, like Dvoretsky, put it this way. Who was Dvoretsky after all? Dvoretsky was a guy who was getting paid to work with the best students. It's not like he started with Yusupov or Dalmatov from scratch. Dalmatov came... To Moscow. He wasn't from Moscow originally. I mean, that guy was getting paid for that. 
and he wasn't alone. So there was there was this difference. I mean, it was noticed, of course, that players from Leningrad they possessed uh, maybe different style, different approach. But ultimately, it was the handicap that we we had to overcome. Now, if you ask me why I didn't become one of the top players in the Soviet Union in my twenties, well, it's all my fault. I dropped the ball. You know, I was no, I was distracted with some other things in life, whatnot. I had breaks, I had jobs, I had whatever. I didn't really completely focus on chess until my late 20s. By that time, it was impossible already to, A, elevate my, my game to a certain level, and B, get the recognition uh, from the from the chess authorities, the powers that be. So that, the train already left the station. It's interesting to hear you say that because, you know... I, in the 80s, you were working as a chess coach, but but as you say, in, in your late 20s, something switched. And, and I wonder if part of that prompted the move to the U.S., although, as I understand it, um, your original intent was not to be a chess player when you moved here. Is that correct? Uh, I didn't have any intent, you know, so I first moved and then I, then I tried to figure out what to do. Okay. I can give you a reason why I didn't... Uh, continue with chess from the first day in the United States. It's simply because I I felt that I wasn't ready culturally uh, to be uh, to be part of American chess scene. I needed some time to get my get my bearings and uh, you know, learn things about my new country and uh, you no know, that's why it took me about three years before I uh, I made this decision to once again become a full-time chess player. When you say that, do you mean in terms of um, being in America generally or or American chess culture? I mean, uh, I, I've often heard people talk about, uh, you know, uh, emigres talking about the difference in having to play for a win in every Swiss or every round of a Swiss as opposed to, you know, playing in a round robin where maybe plus three or plus four is good enough to win. Uh, no, no, that that has nothing to do with okay. that, you know. Well, I, I was talking in much more, much more general terms. Well, you live your life in a new country, and then whatever you do, okay, say you're a chess player, you interact with people, and uh, you should be able to interact with them on a variety of subjects, because these people are no basically your your colleagues, your your coworkers, your teammates, and all that, and you need to be able to talk about uh, about anything. Outside of chess, mm-hmm. okay. It, it assumes first of all that you you can communicate in a new language, and uh, which for adults, you know, it's always a problem. And secondly, you just have to open your open your heart, not even your mind, your heart, to uh, to this new country where you live in now. Well, whatever they do, you can't sit there and say, "Oh, they do things wrong," and whatever things were much much better, whatever. Music was better back in the back in the old country and all that. To, to put it simply, you know, I could not become a, a teammate of Larry Christensen and Joe Benjamin if I didn't know the infield fly rule. If, if you can explain the infield fly rule, I will be... Uh, and <laughs> I can explain the infield fly, fly rule, but maybe maybe our listeners are not uh, as, as, a, as a longtime baseball player, I'm impressed that that was one of the things that you wanted to pick up early. Um, and are, are you still an Oakland A's fan? Is that is that still true? Oh, yes, I am. Yes, I am, you know. Like, yes, yes. Well, the, I mean, I don't know. 
I don't mind going through the heartbreaks, you know, come October. Every yeah, year. I mean that's already part of my life. My so, uh, my family is is mostly Mets fans, so I'm I'm well familiar with with the ongoing heartbreak of of, of baseball fandom. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, yeah. So in yeah, 1992, 1993, you you became basically a professional player again. You. 93, um, 93. I quit my job in 93. But yeah. you, you only became a grandmaster in 1992. Um, why? Now, I, I think I know why, but can you explain to the listeners why your rating got to 2,600 without being a, a grandmaster? How, how did that all come to be? Well, at, at that time, when I left the Soviet Union, I was at 2,470, if I'm not mistaken. But I had a pretty good stretch in Italy where I won quite a few tournaments. So it probably gave me some boost. And then I came to the U.S. Well, I had a day job working for that pharmaceutical company in, the, in New Jersey. That wasn't too far. And besides, I had plenty of time in my hands. So I would travel to New York and play in the Manhattan Chess Club when it was still there, and the Marshall Chess Club. And those tournaments were pretty good. So I think I, I gained some rating in those tournaments. I don't know how I got to be 26.15. That was the rating before the start of the 92 Chess Olympiad in Manila. Which is where you became a Grandmaster, correct? Yeah, well, because well, I had some norms, but right. the norms were questionable because at that time, FIDA didn't recognize the norms from uh, games that had two games a day schedule. So the world opens were questionable, uh, but... I, Anyway, but I did well in the Olympiad itself. And when I got the, the norm from the Olympiad, uh, no, John Donaldson helped me. And uh, what was his name? Uh, Bob Wade? Wade. Yeah. Yeah, the English guy or New Zealand guy. He was the head of the Bob Wade. He was the head of the titles committee. And he kind of looked at this. I mean, things, uh, he said, this guy, I mean, this guy is a grandmaster. He didn't even look at Deeply at this whole. It's funny because I, I I had started I had just started playing serious chess. Well, I mean as serious as I can play it uh, at, at around that time, and so I remember vividly, um, you know, all these great tournament results you had, and and your your rating just skyrocketing, and and everyone being shocked because who's this guy, and and why isn't he a grandmaster, and how did he get so good so quickly? And of course, the real story is that you'd been an excellent chess player for a long time. It just it took a long time for the ratings to, to catch up and for you to get the three norms in the way that you needed to. Well, yeah, I didn't. I never thought of norms. Well, that uh, a lot of people, like if you ask Shabalov or some others, they can tell you those heartbreaking stories about getting the last norm and the nerves and all that and the failures. And to me, I never even thought of this. Honestly, I just okay. So I came to play World Opens in the, my first couple of years. I just wanted to. To do better, maybe win some money, and uh, didn't even think that it would be a norm. I was, I thought, I thought it won't count anyway because of the two games a day and the sudden death time control. So you have two U.S. championships to your name uh, among your your many many tournament wins. Uh, in 1993, you shared the title with uh, Alex Shabalov. And in 1996, you won it uh, outright. What what sticks out to you from those days and, and from those championships? Is there anything that, that is particularly memorable to you? No, generally speaking, this uh, decision to, to become a chess professional, it didn't sit well 
with uh, some people I knew. Well, they... No, anyway, so it cost me some personal problems, put it this way. But, uh, but the way I figured... Okay, you talk about uh, other people who came from the Soviet Union or elsewhere. Most of them came with their families. I came by myself. And, uh, oh, anyway, it was easy in some ways. So I had more time to to do things I wanted to do, but no, after a while, well, I I developed some obligations, put it this way, and uh, well, people, uh, some people felt, you know, that I that I simply, no, abandoned those. But on the other hand, I thought, all right, I was in my mid thirties. How much time realistically I had to to do this? No, I thought maybe I have five years. I didn't know how far I would go, but but I figured if I don't do this, then then what? You know, I will live the rest of my life regretting that I didn't give it a shot. Right. I could sit there and that uh, in that quality control lab, uh, well, for I mean until now, whatever. Hmm. <laughs> but I didn't think it was worth it. So that. I didn't want to abandon my dream, you know, over that security thing, you know, which is... I'm, I'm actually... This This is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and this is probably as good a point as any. Um, can you talk about the difference in making that decision that a player like you would have then compared to now? Um, I mean, with the internet and with internet teaching and with you know, uh, video resources and things like that, w- would the decision be easier or harder today? Would it would it not make any difference to you in, in terms of when you made the decision to go pro? Uh, are, are there different things to consider? No, well, clearly right now it's not time for me to make any decisions. I'm 63 <laughs> this year, you know. So time for decisions is uh, all in the past, you know. I'm not going to make any decisions now. So that's, that's it. Uh, as for uh, younger people, no, I don't really envy that choice. Well, things are, it, it's not like things were really that stable, you know, back in the back in the 1990s. But I think, generally speaking, the ratio of your potential earnings as a chess player versus your expenses was more acceptable. Now I think life is just too expensive, and uh, relying on your on your income as a chess player is a very iffy thing to do. Certainly, there's room for Wesley So and Hikaru Nakamura, but maybe not that much for for many people. So that's first thing I I wanted to say. And then secondly, no, let's consider the alternatives. I mean, I don't know if there are any stable jobs now. To be honest, I don't want our interview to go in a political angle, but the fact is, you know, that you whatever you do in life, it's just you cannot say that you're going to have the you're going to be doing the same thing uh, for until you retire. There is no guarantee. So I don't know. You have to wait out. Well, when whatever, make a decision. There are some pros, some cons, but it's all individual. Well, I I don't really I don't really give advice. But if young if young players are listening to this, well, it's entirely up to them. They're going to catch a lot of grief. Well, that's for sure. But, but I mean, if they figure it's worth it, well, go ahead. 
So you you have done um, a lot of teaching and writing, and your 1999 book, The Road to Chess Improvement, is still uh, talked about uh, in 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 the fondest of terms by 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 chess chess literature lovers. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the what the book is about and and why you think it was so well received? I mean, first of all, I'm not really a writer, right? So I only wrote two books. And the second one, which was the classical Sicilian, that was basically part of this uh, chess explained. It was very much structured. Uh, I just followed along with the with the ideas that the publisher gave. So, it, well, the road chess improvement is different. It's uh, it's an organic kind of thing. And then, I guess every person can write one book. And uh, I. Uh, no, I fully took it this way. So I was, I was just sharing my thoughts with the chess world without any idea if the book is gonna sell or I don't know. It's gonna have any staying power. Apparently, it has. Maybe because I didn't think of that exactly because of that. I was just sharing my thoughts, you know, and then honestly. Well, I didn't really have a, a big game plan when I was writing this book. I was just simply sitting sitting there at the computer and uh, and writing it every day until one day it was done. You, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> you make it sound so easy. Oh, it's very easy. Any person can write one book. It's to, to write your second and third book. It's very difficult. So uh, I do have to ask then on that basis: Is there any hope of another book from Alex Yermolinsky in the future? I, for many years, I thought, no, I would never write another book because I thought I can only write about myself and I became largely irrelevant. No, because of the general decline as a chess player. And I don't really know as people, as persons, modern chess players, what can I possibly write about Caruana or Carlson? I never even, never even uh, talked to them. So I don't know. But then again, it's hard to tell. Now with this ongoing pandemic, I may have enough time, so I'll, I will sit down and maybe I might actually write. But I, I didn't think I would. I was prepared for a great life of a chess tourist. All I thought I would be just uh, traveling to some places that I like to visit and, and playing tournaments with local players. And... Uh, basically enjoying the rest of my life. But it doesn't seem to be possible or plausible, at least. At least not right uh, now. Yeah, no, I... And yet, yeah, right now. So I don't know. If I if I sit there for another... I'm actually working on one project now, which I don't want to disclose. But when I'm done, which is probably going to happen sometime in April or May, then, uh, I don't know then I might just write a book or I have no idea what to write about. Well, we will keep an eye out for this project whenever it is done. And uh, personally, my fingers are, are crossed that, that this book will come to fruition. As I said in the introduction, you've done a lot in the chess world beyond playing. You've, you've been a teacher, you've written, um, but you've also had, uh, you know, uh, this Yermo Chess Academy that uh, you did with Boris Men, yeah. who, who played in a U.S. championship and then we never heard from again. Uh, well, he... Passed away recently. I did not know that. Well, yeah, well, unfortunately. Well, Boris, uh, he quit chess because, no, he loved chess, but no, he had the background in 
he had advanced degrees in mathematics, and he worked. Uh, he went to work for some kind of financial outfit, you know, like the market analyst or whatnot. You know, so that's what he did. That's why he disappeared from chess. But mm. that's what he did the last twenty years of his life. So this was in Cleveland, correct? Yes. And how roughly how long did the Yermo Chess Academy exist, and 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 what was your aim in starting it? Uh, it existed probably for two and a half or maybe three years. My uh, my time in Cleveland was rather short. I only spent uh, four four years and some months in uh, in Cleveland. Well, the idea was to I don't know, just get together with uh, with local players. And uh, I made a few friends, and we just decided, I don't know, give to, give us a reason to get together, talk about chess and all that. I always believe that the chess, I mean, chess is it's just a vehicle for you to get to yeah. meet people. Right? Absolutely, get to do things, get to travel. You know, get all. It, it is just a different, it's a lifestyle thing. It's more than, it's not just a, your drive and ambition to become a world champion. There are a lot of people, very strong players, they didn't really have it. They didn't want to admit it. I, for example, never had it, but it's understandable. I was never that good. But even some players, I don't know, take Bent Larson. Larson, of course, said, you know, oh, I'm going to win the next world championship cycle and I'm going to become a world champion. But he he didn't really think of that. His whole life, you know, was just to travel and play tournaments. And that's what he wanted to do. How do you think? So a lot of people feel the same way, you know, like that it doesn't have to be like, okay, if I didn't reach that goal, then I, I'm a total failure and whatever. No, no it absolutely doesn't mean it. You do what you do. And that's why in Cleveland we were just getting together and with some some guys who may be 1,800 players, but we talked about chess when we would break for lunch, we talk about some other things, and then we'll, we'll do more chess. It was just basically for fun. How do you think the the pandemic and living through the pandemic is altering the chess world in that respect. Because when I hear you say that, I, I think to myself, Yermo is absolutely right. I mean, that's that's what a chess community is. But we're, we're we're having to to simulate that right now with you know with online blitz tournaments with our friends to try to keep some semblance of camaraderie. And and I I just wonder what that's going to do long term to to the chess community. I don't know. Well, I talked to my friends and. Uh... No, everybody's hoping that no, the tournaments will come back. If they don't, no, it's not just the restrictions and just the difficulty in traveling and uh, whatever. And the funding may, may dry out because no, those things they barely worked when <laughs> when the tournaments were <laughs> were followed one another year after year. And now after this break, well, it's going to be difficult to restart it. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I I can't really speak for for other people. I mean, for younger people, whatever it is. For myself, it's basically game over. Well, I'm not going to play online. I just don't see any any sense. Not only because I'm not going to be able to do well for the reasons we already discussed. Uh, also, I don't. I just don't like it. So basically, for me, it's game over. It's entirely possible that I will never, never play another. 
another chess move on the on the board or on the internet. That's slightly depressing, Alex. No, well, but that's how it is. Yeah. I mean, the tournaments may come back, you know, but the, the thing is now, I think the travel is so difficult and there's just so many complications and uncertainty. Crossing international borders now is a risky proposition. From Cleveland, uh, just to keep us on track, because I, I know you have other things to do today. I um, actually don't, but that's Oh, fine. well then, <laughs> we'll talk all day. Um, but from Cleveland, uh, you, you ended up at the Mechanics Institute, and, and you were the Grandmaster in Residence there for eight years, is that correct? Uh, well, a few months short of eight years, but yeah, pretty much. So how did you end up there, and, and, and uh, what was it like to, to be at the Mechanics every day, or, or you know, multiple days a week for, for such a long period of time? Uh, well, they had Roman Ginger before me, but... Somehow there are some conflicts. No, Ginger is not the easiest guy to to deal with on a daily basis. So Ginger left. So they had a, they had this kind of vacancy to fill, and uh, I just happened to be at. Uh, I went to this tournament in Reno, Nevada, in the Western States, which I played very many times. I I I flew there and I was there, and John Donaldson talked to me and said, "Would you be interested in that?" And I said, hey, why not? And uh, I had this interview. I think that was very short. And they hired me. Also, this is how I ended up there. I mean, I'm not sure. I kind of knew that on the one hand, well, that would not help my, well, my chess, right? But already, no, I got married, you know, and Camille and I, we had a, our son was born. And clearly, I, I wasn't going to be able to travel uh, all the time and then focus completely on this, not to mention that I was 41 years old. So it was basically time to quit with uh, full-time chess playing. So that offer came very handy. It came in very handy. Uh, at the mechanics, what, what I did... Well, I don't know, just whatever the regular club operations. Well, we had tournaments, Tuesday night marathon, and uh, weekend tournaments practically every weekend. Well, I gave some lectures to uh, in there, I think it was every, every Tuesday and, and Wednesday. There are some other things to do. Yeah, on, I, I found you uh, an old piece of writing that you had on, on the on your old website uh, where you talked about having to wrangle their website and, and fix it and how difficult that was, uh, which, you know, given that when you were writing, this is like 2001 or 2002 uh, felt very pertinent because I think those of us who were interested in the internet back then know exactly what a pain in the butt it was to build websites. No, well, I wasn't alone with that, but well, there, there were some some other people helping out, but but I mean they, we didn't really need that much, you know. I don't know, just put our tournament announcements and keep the archive of uh, of tournament results. It wasn't really that much to do, but no, anyway. Well, somehow I maintained it. When did you start uh, recording videos for the Internet Chess Club? And and I mean, really, I think that's. You know, for for chess players of a certain generation, that is how they know Alex Yermolinsky, the the voice and the great videos. Uh, did you start doing that while you were in San Francisco or after you left? No, no. Uh, well, when my job ran out, I 
I didn't try to hang in there, you know. I, I thought it was kind of... It wasn't practical, you know, with the family and all that. So I decided to move to South Dakota. And... Uh, um, I'm not sure if it was 2008 or 2009 where I started making some recordings around that time. So at the same time, I was, well, I attempted to build a, a program just in the schools here in Sioux Falls, mm -hmm. which lasted a little bit, but then it started kind of, once I got more work on the internet that I didn't have time to do this and uh, And then it withered and died. I mean, the chess and the schools. Are you are you still able to do teaching in South Dakota, or is this or is mostly everything you do online now? I I don't remember earning one dollar in in South Dakota in the past three or four years. Wow, sounds a lot like Nebraska in some ways. Where it's 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 very difficult to build. And and granted, I mean, you know, I'm I'm certainly not you, <laughs> um, but in terms of building chess culture. Uh, out here on the plains, it can be, it can be a very lonely proposition. Well, yeah, it's uh, it wasn't really working that well, but I mean, it was okay. Well, some some parents were happy, some kids were happy, but all in all, uh, there was no there was no support from uh, from from anybody, basically. So. so, why do you think you've been such a success with the internet videos? Because You know, I, I I think that most chess players, as soon as they hear you speak, they know it's you, and and they can visualize the videos. Why why do you think they took off the way they did? Well, like you asking, you know, why a seven footer can dunk the basketball? I'm blessed with his <laughs> voice. People who don't, no, well, they're just I don't know how they even there. I mean, sometimes you know, like I don't want to name any names, but you probably know. You tune in, and then there is this guy or this girl. They simply don't have the voice to be on the radio. That's how it is. I mean, there are other things, you know. Obviously, well, you you need to learn certain things. Well, I I remember I spent a lot of time listening to the radio, uh, just radio, not chess radio, trying to follow those hosts. You know how they uh, how they manage to keep the audience. <laughs> from falling asleep while speaking in two hours nonstop. I learned a few things. What they do with their voice and the pauses and the this modulation and the this and that, you know. But it's basically trial and error. I never took any uh, any particular classes or, or coaching on that. But with time, I got a little better. But but these days when the, every, everyone and their sister you know, run to the computer to become a streamer. Absolute majority of these people, they, mm. they're unlistenable. Yeah, it's, um, there are an awful lot of people trying to do this. And and certainly it's 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 a tough marketplace and it's very hard to separate yourself. And yeah, if you don't have it, you don't have it. It's it's hard to do. Well, that's how it is. If you're not seven seven feet tall, you know, then it's hard to earn your place in the NBA, I suppose. No, okay, well. Exaggerated, but you yeah. you get my drift. Now I, I know you said that you 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 do think there's a chance that you have you have pushed your last pawn in anger, at least over the board. Um, but I did want to ask you about the new emphasis on senior chess in America. Um, you know the the senior championship that uh, you know unfortunately it had to be held online this year. But uh, you know I was I was there in 2019 when the 
when the first one happened, and it seemed like you guys were having a lot of fun. No, yeah, because we got together, you know, the camaraderie that you mentioned. That was the thing. But I, I actually dropped dropped out of this. I don't think I'm good enough, and uh, rating-wise, I'm nowhere near, and uh, there are new people turning 50. So even if the tournament resumes the way it was in 2019, there is no way I can I can get a spot in there. Do you think that, that we should look to having... Uh, two sorts of senior championships, like like they do for the sixty five. Uh, yeah, yeah, fifty and sixty five, like they do for the uh, for the team championships. No, that would be nice. It would take uh, some additional financing. There are already quite a, quite a few people that are about to reach this blessed age of sixty five. I mean, if you uh, James Tarjan, obviously he's uh, he has returned to chess and we played uh, already once over the board. It was in Seattle. Just before the pandemic hit, that was in January last year. So James would be very much interested. And of course, the, some other guys, Larry, Larry Christensen, he's turning 65 this year. Which is, is, is hard for me to believe as someone who, who came of age uh, watching his, you know, yeah. slash and burn tactics. <laughs> so Larry C is going to be there quickly followed by who's going to be next. Uh, Nick DeFerman, then me and John Fedorovich, we were the will be 63 mm. this year. So, yeah, by the time this p- pandemic ends or whatever, our attitude ends toward it, you know, maybe it would be very nice if uh, if you could find the funding and have our 65-plus team. I actually told this guy, Sveshnikov and uh, uh, Balashov and others who win it every year at the 65-plus for Russia, yeah. I told them, you know, wait, you your time is coming. <laughs> We're coming for you. That's it. Yeah, no, of course you know all that. <laughs> but, oh, um, Alex. Yeah, no, no. We'll see. Alex, this has been great. And um, I mean, it's it's such a treat to get to talk to you. I, I, I do want to ask, so you, you did mention you have a mystery project coming up um, that you're working on right now. Right, right, right. But what it's else? Not, I, I tell you what it is. Well, uh, I'm working for Chessable. You really? know what Chessable is? Yes. Of course. So it's not going to be a book book. It's going to be a project for Chessable. That's it. Excellent. That's what I'm working on. And it's going to be huge. Well, we're, we're, we're breaking news here at the podcast. I mean, it's going to be huge with the, with the <laughs> you know, the big letters. Huge. Hum- humongous. Gigantic. Outstanding. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be very excited to see that. I know Chessable is, is such, it, it's such a growing platform right now now that especially since they've had the investment from play magnus and it'll be excellent to see what this turns out to be i, I know there are a few other things coming out featuring american players or, or at least their their works that will be of interest so yeah excellent i'll be excited to hear that what what else though what else is coming up for you what else can we look forward to from alex Yermolinsky in the in the months ahead no since i already reached the 50 point break in my snooker and uh, I can never make a hundred po- point break. And I don't know what to expect over there. So, uh, okay. Hmm. Don't, know. <laughs> don't know what to expect from me. I don't know. I hope, uh, I think all of us have this important priority now is to stay positive, healthy. Not in a, in a physical sense. Anybody can get sick, you know, whatever, but mentally. You know, so I want to wish you and, uh, and every listener here mental strength you know that's yeah no we'll, we'll pull through it come on you know this is 
no pull through it one way or another, you know, just most importantly, wake up in the morning, you know, like shower and shave, put a clean shirt Wait, on, wait, you're, you know, you're supposed to do that these days? Yes, yes, you do. More than more than before. Okay, so those days, you know, when, of the dot-com culture, which I witnessed myself, it was just on the other side of Market, market Street in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But I, mean, I think those days, you know, the world, that, that that those days were great days, but they're not coming back. Right now, well, we, I wish... I wish everyone the mental strength and a little bit of self-discipline is not going to hurt. Absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, yeah. We're the 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 vaccine is here. It's it's everything's on the horizon. Hopefully, by the end of this year, uh, we'll see you at the Iowa Open, for example. If it's going to happen in August, that would be great. Well, if because I'm in the one Y group. You know, if they do it alphabetically, it might take a little bit of time before I get the vaccine. See, as it turns out, I may be high risk for uh, lots of for uh, a couple of reasons. So I'm I'm hopeful that I can sneak in and and get it soon. But oh, one age, you know, is not that not that far. No, I'm just joking. No. You know, so I I don't know really how this thing's gonna work. Uh, but whatever it is, you know, like uh, most importantly. As I said, I repeat myself that uh, we need to stay strong mentally and uh, and keep doing what what we are doing. Absolutely. All right. Well, Alex, where can we find you? Are you on social media? If our listeners wanted to to reach out to you, absolutely not. You know that social media is. <laughs> I always had my suspicions about that, and lately there's been a lot of things with people getting banned, and then uh, I don't know, just getting all broken up over it. You know, so if you're not over there, that they can cannot ban you. So I'm, that is true. That is true. Well, I'm I'm good. You know, so I'm good. Alex Yermolinsky, unbanned as of now, unbanned for the future. Alex, thank you so much. Um, it is really. Uh, you know, again, as, as someone who who started in chess, watching you in your your great ascent in American chess history, um, it's always a pleasure to get to talk to you and and to hear your unvarnished thoughts. Um, I really do appreciate it. And I know our listeners will too. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.